Hear the word of the Lord. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. So if you're joining us today for the first time, and I know there are a few who are first time, believe me, this is not by design that we have a service like this. Um, It's not any gimmicks. Um, This is just genuine. And you're also joining us at a time where we're concluding or coming to the end of a series on this passage. We've been in this passage all of, I think it's 11 weeks now. I know that might seem overblown or too much, but I really do believe that this passage carries for us in this particular time in the life of Christianity something extremely important for us to hold on to. The whole point of this series is to make sure I'm addressing everyone in very specific ways, very nuanced ways to help you understand how you can exhort your brother and sister in Christ. That's the central command in this text. Exhort one another every day. So I've attempted to show in each message how this has applied to everyone, or how this ought to apply to everyone. So, for example, in the message that I preached to husbands and how husbands can exhort their wives, hopefully in that message, even if you're not a husband or not a man at all, hopefully you heard how you can exhort your brothers in Christ who are husbands and help them exhort their wives. Every message has been, or at least has attempted to be, for everyone. The problem is our natural minds are stuck in a self-serving frame. And we think usually, how does this help me? How does this apply to me? And if we can't answer that question easily, we pass over it and we think, well, it's not for me. I don't have time for it. I'm trying to help us all be a better team. Even as I myself try to be a better team player, to be a good sportsman in whatever sport you choose to do, you have to really, the the higher you get in understanding that particular sport, you understand each position in that sport, even if you've never played it. So I'm trying to help us understand what our part to play is and help you understand what other people have to do and what the command to them is so that you can help them obey. So up to this point, you may have slipped through the cracks, at least in your own mind, from the application from each sermon. Maybe in the sermon I preached, uh, let's say, regarding uh, the older and the younger, you thought, well, I don't really fall into either of those categories. Or in husbands and wives, I'm not married, or siblings and parents, like, well, I'm kind of out of that phase. For whatever reason, maybe you've thought that you've kind of slipped through the cracks and then none of those have really specifically applied to your situation. Today, this week, is the massive and beautiful catch-all, okay? So at the end of this message, if you still find a way to excuse yourself or you still feel at a loss to know how you might exhort your brothers and sisters then I'm very sorry. And maybe it's because I've done a terrible job of explaining it. But that's why we pray before every sermon. We ask for God's help 
So that as I speak, the words I choose to illuminate the Word of God, even as the Word of God is sufficient in itself, that you would see how it applies to your situation. And I'm standing here today preaching from this book to change your minds. Really, we don't have any other reason to gather here if we're just delighting in some beautiful thing. We're here because we need to be changed. Our lives are not perfect as they are. They don't reflect God rightly the way they ought to. So we come together and feed on the Word of God in order that we might be changed and become more like Christ. So if that hasn't happened up to this point, partly that must be my fault, but you need to take responsibility. This whole series has been an urgent plea to all of us that we need to exhort one another so that we might all endure. So please allow these words, allow these exhortations to change your minds. Because eternity depends on it. As a result of this series, I decided I would go through and list out my friends. I've mentioned them before, but those who previously stood together with me, raising hands and worshiping God with what I thought was total sincerity and who are now living openly opposed to God and His ways. There are 32 that I could think of, and 18 where I'm not sure. And for each of them, it's a long story of people not doing their job, including myself, of exhorting them in the right way. And they take ultimate responsibility for it. But I don't want that to be our story. I mean, these are people, many of them, who spent thousands of dollars for theological education. Not just fringe Christians. These are people that I thought, there is a son or daughter of God. And you might ask, well, were they even saved at all? Probably not. I know that might offend some of you. That answer might offend some of you. And others of you might want me to say that if they truly made a profession of faith, they'll eventually come back. But historically, that's simply not true. And this is why verse 14 is so important for us in this message. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have come to share in Christ, past tense, if conditional, indeed we endure, future. So the proof of us having come to share in Christ in truth is that we endure to the end, whether that means our death or the return of Christ. This teaching is not popular today. And maybe it's never been. It's unsettling. And to this idea, the disciples responded, then who can be saved? Jesus' answer, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You want to live a life that has meaning, filled with significance, that gives you a sense of accomplishment and purpose? 
Most of us want to do something that will cause us to be loved and adored by the 99, but we do not want to do the long-suffering, prayer-dependent, agonizing work of going after the one. Even more so, we don't want to do the grace-dependent, sacrificial, spirit-dependent work of going through the flock to find the one before they wander out of the flock to their own ruin. But in this work, this is where we find God. This is where you find God at work. Why else would he use that parable, that analogy of going after the one who was lost if that isn't what indeed the Son of Man came to do, what the Spirit Himself is at work doing in our midst? People talk about, well, just find what God is doing, where He's working, and join into that. Yeah, and that's often a very unattractive, very grueling work of exhorting your brothers and sisters so that none of them would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is this the life you want? Is this manner of exhorting this going after the one, this finding any root of bitterness that exists within us and rooting it out and exhorting one another every day with that type of urgency, is that the kind of life you want? If it's not, then I'm appealing to you that you would allow the truth here to change your mind. Next week, we're going to pull back to hopefully a 10,000, 30,000 foot level and see the whole thing. We're going to talk about the kingdom of God and your life and the decisions we make day to day that either build towards the kingdom of God or even tear it down. This is our last specific question to the author of Hebrews. We want to know, author of Hebrews, how we can exhort our friends. How can we take this huge command to exhort one another every day that you've given us, author of Hebrews, and make it work in every interaction with people who we may only know a very little bit about? How can we exhort our friends to endure and exhort them away from sin? In this, and as it has been in every situation and relationship that we've looked up to this point, Jesus Christ is our example. In the last two sermons, I've brought in three different texts from the book of Hebrews to talk about how we can look to Christ as our example, even in answering questions about how Christ was never a husband, Christ is, was never a wife in the human sense, Christ has never been old, right? He died at 30 or 33 years old. Christ didn't have children in the human sense, but regardless of what your situation is, you can look to Jesus as your example. So we've been harping on this the entire time, and I'll read one of these verses that we've used as the pillars of answering these questions. Hebrews 4, 14-16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The point here 
that I'm drawing from this text is that regardless of what your struggle or question is when it comes to how you should live and how you should live a life that pleases God, you need only look to Christ as your example. And we get into trouble when we trust in someone else's example as to what it means to live like Christ. And maybe this is because we misunderstood the text where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But what he means there, what he has to mean is imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. In the ways that you see me line up with the example of Jesus, that's what you should imitate about me. Jesus is our example. And for our purposes this week, Jesus shows us what God-honoring friendships should look like. So in the remaining time we have, I want to go through five, uh, I'm sorry, seven different applications from Jesus' life of how we can be like him and exhort our friends. The first is friendship, as we look to Jesus as our example, should not be worthless association, but seeking to please the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. People get confused when they look at the example of Jesus because we see Him as the friend of sinners. guy who hung out with the dirty, the unwanted, the sinner class. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we get there... Jesus did not spend time with people who were trying to pull him down and make him abandon his mission. You can look at his interactions with Satan in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Even though it was the will of God, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. At that point, you're trying to draw me away, distract me, divert me from the path that God has for me. Be gone! Even Peter When Peter tried to discourage him from the path of obedience, Jesus turns to to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And to the Jews, all of them. John says this, so from that day when they made, plan, they, they made plans to put him to death, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. It was not the Father's plan for Jesus to die at this moment. And because it wasn't his plan, because exposing himself to them would have accelerated the path to Golgotha. He said, I'm not going to walk openly among you anymore. 
He was so solely dedicated to the will of God that he wouldn't associate with anyone who would attempt to divert him from that. And it required repentance from those who did in order to stay with him. So, application for you all. Go through your list of friends and remove those who are a hindrance to you. It's not worth it. Bad company corrupts good morals. Those who tempt you to divert from the will of the Father, be brave enough to confront them for the sake of their souls and be willing to lose the relationship over it. But didn't Jesus associate with sinners? He was called the friend of sinners. It's even more intense than that. The sinner class was those deemed unfit for association within the people of God. Tax collectors, prostitutes, those who had made themselves by a long line of disobedience enemies of God outside of Israel. And Jesus associated with them. But it wasn't just to hang out. And the three stories that come to mind when you think about Jesus' friendship with the sinner are the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, and Zacchaeus. And in all three of those, each of the stories centers around repentance. He didn't just hang out with Zacchaeus. It was fully understood what Jesus meant when He says, today I'm coming to your house. And it follows in repentance. Close the gap aggressively for the sake of the gospel. That's what I'm saying. Yes, you can associate associate with the sinners, those in the world, even if they are what we would consider really bad sinners, our own sinner class that we've created. But the point should be their salvation and our obedience. I also want to give a gift to fathers on this Father's Day. We've already addressed you men and also how your wives can exhort you and how you can exhort your wives. But I want to speak specifically to the fathers, the men among us, because friendship is really difficult for guys. In general, I know there are exceptions. But the gospel usually works in sync or at the same time or over and with situations where godly male friendship exists. You can think of Jesus and the apostles themselves, Paul and his groups that he went with. Any story of great missionary movement through the centuries have been groups of men solely devoted to the glory of God. I think of Jim Elliott. If you don't know his story, I won't rehearse it. Um, But the power of God seems to flow mightily where men together, without bitterness or rivalry between them, devote themselves fully to the glory of God. Yet there are major challenges. And I want to read from this article from Jane Brody. She's the personal health columnist for the New York Times, a position she's held since 1976. 
She's widely read and quoted, and she was titled The High Priestess of Health from the Time Magazine. So she knows a little bit about what she's talking about. After Marla Paul, a Chicago-area writer, wrote a book, The Friendship Crisis, Finding, Making, and Keeping Friends When You're Not a Kid Anymore, about establishing meaningful friendships with other women, she was inundated with requests from men to give equal treatment to male friendship. A lot of men were upset because I didn't include them, Miss Paul wrote, told me. They felt that making and keeping friends was a lot harder for men, that close friendships were not part of their culture. They pointed out that women have all kinds of clubs, that there's more cultural support for friendship among women than there is for men. In a study in the 1980s about the effect of marriage and childcare arrangement, two Boston area psychiatrists, Dr. Jocelyn Olds and Dr. Richard Stanton Schwartz, found that almost to a man, men were so caught up in working, building their careers, and being more involved with their children than their own fathers had been, something had to give. And what gave was connection with male friends. Their lives just didn't allow time for friendships. Consciously or otherwise, the article continues, many men believe that, taking, that talking about personal matters with another man is not manly. The result is often less intimate, more casual friendships between men, making the connections more tenuous and harder to sustain. Some married men consider their wives to be their best friends, and many depend on their wives to establish and maintain the couple's social connections, which can all but disappear when a couple divorces or the wife dies. Differences between male and female friendships start at an early age. Observing how his four young granddaughters interact socially, Mr. Bremer said, they have way more of that kind of activity than boys have. It may explain why, as adults, they continue to do much, a much better job of it. In defense of his gender, he observed men have a harder time reaching their emotions and are less likely than women to reveal their emotional side. But when you have a real friendship, it's because you've done just that. He has found that it's important to expose yourself and be honest about what's going on. If you reveal yourself in the right way to the right person, it will be just fine. There are risks. You can't force it. Sometimes it doesn't work. You can get a don't burden me with that kind of response. And you know to back off, but more often men will respond in kind. And I read that to just underscore the fact that this isn't just me saying this is a problem, but it's recognized even from the secular world that men don't do a good job of maintaining meaningful relationships. So my gift to fathers, my attempt is to highlight the need for friendship and call everyone else in this room to help the men, the fathers in your lives to build Christ-centered relationships. So we're not, we're not about, we don't want meaningless association that diverts us from the will of God. We want 
Christ-centered, God-honoring relationships. The second thing about friendships that we can look to Jesus to understand how we can exhort one another is that it's not just about our tribe, our family, and those who are like us, but Christ-like love. You can often only love those who are like you. Those who see the things the way that you see them. Those who are politically aligned the same way as you. Those who are in the same life stage as you. Those are the people that it's easy to have friendships with. We don't go out and make friends outside of those categories. Be like Jesus and don't surround yourself with mirrors. Have friends who are different than you. Or your friend group will become an echo chamber. This is a serious exhortation to the young people among us. I know, young people, it's hard to make friends with people who are different than you because a lot of people don't give you the time of day. You act out of line once, and then you're written off the list. So it's very easy to surround yourself with people who are all your same age, and they become an echo chamber, and you're never challenged to think outside of yourself. We usually want to associate with the pretty and the popular. But that's not what Jesus did. The condescension of the incarnation is glorified in this, that He makes us His friends. I have called you my friends. Can you imagine the condescension in the incarnation? how lowly we are compared to Him, how different from Him we are, and yet He makes us His friends. Our knowing God in the way that we ought to know Him and our ability to bear fruit is built on this action of Jesus on His part, making us His friends. The third way, that we can look to Jesus as our example in exhorting our friends, is that it's not about disinterested or what some people have called a platonic relationship, but we should be eager to gain eternal reward and benefit for both people in the friendship. So the world by its example says that we need to make sure that we're friends with those who can benefit us. We call this networking, right? We'll put our social media handles out there. We'll try to get everyone's emails and business cards so we have a nice network so that we have kind of a job security blanket that exists so that if anything bad happens, we can reach out to someone who has a skill set or a connection that we need. That's self-interested. But the world says at the same time that that's not real friendship, that we should be disinterested or have a platonic relationship where it's friendship for friendship's sake. So how do we resolve these? Biblically, you should want something out of your friendships. This is how Paul says it in Romans 1. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
So Paul wanted to go to the Roman church, obviously because he wanted to be helped by them on his way to Gaul as a missionary. But more than that, he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them and be strengthened by them. What's your purpose in your relationships? What's your reason for the friendship? You have one whether you know it or not. And your reason for having that friendship either makes the friendship natural and sinful or supernatural and glorifying to God. When when Paul says do everything to the glory of God, that also means your relationships, your friendships. Jesus' desire for us when he talks about making us his friends is that we would bear much fruit. Jesus makes us his friends not as an end in itself, but so that we will know what he is doing, what is right, and out of that closeness with God, obey God and bear much fruit. Maybe you've been going about this Christian life all the wrong way. Maybe there's no emotional or personal intimacy between you and the Lord Jesus. Maybe the obedience that you've been able to white-knuckle So it's good that you're not giving in is exhausting because there's no real reward felt or meted out in the friendship with the Lord. This is how Paul talks about growing in Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And this is how he says it to the Thessalonians. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. You can't be the type of friend who just wants to teach or influence or network. It has to be about God and his kingdom, and it has to be out of a love for your brother. May I be so bold to say that the world and the church would be better off if we had less preachers, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, but have more normal Christians who are committed to being Christ-like friends. And the reason I feel completely justified in saying that is because of 1 Corinthians 13. So what if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and prophesy and give my body to be burned? I don't have love. The fourth way that we can look at Jesus as the example for how we're to exhort our friends is that it's not about aimless fun and pleasure, but truth and change. And there is, friends, so much aimless fun and pleasure. And everyone is guilty of this, and we often define the quality of our friendships by the fun and the pleasure that we're able to get out of the friendship. The word aimless is important. I'm not against pleasure. I'm not against fun. Anyone who knows me knows that. However, the fun and the pleasure must be the servant to truth and change. Be like Jesus and become that friend. Does that make sense? When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he says, hey, 
Um, we know that you're from God. You know, no one can do these signs that you're doing unless they're sent by God. And what does Jesus do? Does he try to make a friend? Say, hey, thanks for coming. Let me, you know, do you want any refreshments? Do you want, uh, let's talk about that and piecemeal his presentation of the truth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Also in John 6, remember the story? Jesus performs the miracle of turning uh, the fish and the loaves into enough to feed the thousands. And the people come to Jesus and they're all coming to Him in droves and they're wanting to make Him their King even. But He says, unless you're willing to eat of My body and drink of My blood without really any lengthy explanation of what He's saying... You can have no part in me. And it says the crowds left him at that moment. And he even turns to the disciples in that moment and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter, you got to love Peter. He says, you have the words of life to where else will we go? Be that friend. Okay, the person that everyone knows, hey, I'm going to call so-and-so. I'm going to call Joshua. And I know that if I ask him this question, I may not like it, but he's going to tell me the truth. In kindness and in love. I'm not saying to be mean. But be a truth teller. Let your relationship be built on truth and change. And this flows from it. The fifth way. Not cheap delights or easy angst. But divine joy and sorrow. Be like Jesus and don't be a stoic. Every movie that you've ever seen about Jesus usually presents Jesus as this stoic. He has no emotion, he's completely placid, and he's not changed or he doesn't have urgent feeling. The problem is not that you and your friends love life too much, is that you love life too little. Abounding joy as you walk through this life and pointing people to the Father is the goal of being like Jesus. There is this spiritual joy, this overcoming joy when you realize this is my Father's world. Can you sit and have a meal with a friend to the glory of God? A lot of that has to do with how grateful and how joyful you are that God has blessed you so much. The relationships I've had in my life with people who exhibit a joy in God, not cheap delights, not going from thing to thing to thing, one video to the next, one meme to the next, one game to the next, to provide them with joy and happiness, but deep, settled joy in God. Those have been the most transformative relationships. And for almost 10 years now, I've been praying almost every day that God would make me a more joyful, grateful person. Do you love being a child of God? Did you know you have a moral obligation to be happy? You do. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is today the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. 
This is a shameless plug for Celebration Sunday. What we do on Celebration Sunday is to come together and with one voice say yes and amen. Christ is victorious. Also, at the same time, we have this deep abiding joy in God, joy from God, but we can also be like Jesus and be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is not a contradiction and it's not a paradox. We can understand this because this was Jesus. He is the example to us. And it's not opaque. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 10, Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. And he says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things, referring to the gospel, from the wise, and you have made them known to the simple, to even these children, referring to the apostles. He rejoices in the Spirit. And then in chapter 19, he weeps over Jerusalem for the very same reason. says, oh, that I could gather you under my wings, but these things have been hidden from you. It's the very same thing that God has done in both cases, and it brings him joy in the Holy Spirit and tears. And many of us, I think, are hesitant to entrust ourselves to a Christ-like vision of the world because that apparent contradiction in our eyes is unbearable. It's frightening to feel that degree of divine joy and at the same time, over the same truths, feel deep divine sorrow. We just want to be happy. We want to have cheap delights and go from thing to thing to thing as they try to buoy our souls, but they can't. Jesus wasn't confused. He was complex. He had both of these things in him at the same time towards the same thing. And how does this relate to friendship? You become like those who you admire and who you associate with. Beware of people who encourage you to be glib or to have easy angst or be gloomy. Be the kind of friend to draw people to yourself and encourage you and serve as an example to you of deep abiding joy and exhibit this Christ-like sorrow. The sixth way that we can look to Jesus as our example, is that we need not be nostalgic. We should press on. This one is difficult because many of us, especially those of us who have lived longer, might look back to relationships of the past and have a long list of hurts when it comes to friendships. Or many of us look back and we overly romanticize our past relationships. Friends, nostalgia is a liar. The biblical ideal of friendships is to forget what lies behind and press on. Not that we should intentionally think less of what God has done for us, 
and what he has taught us through those relationships that we've had over the years. We shouldn't burn it all to the ground, but we should not let the past blessings make us think less of new beginnings. And at the same time, we should not let past hurts or betrayals make us jaded and distrust the start of something new. What if Jesus had done that? What if Jesus had looked at us and instead of thinking of what could begin and what could be new and what type of friendships he could form with us, just remembered the hurts and betrayals of the past? We wouldn't be saved. No one would. The new covenant itself is birthed out of the muck and mire of ruin and destruction at the very lowest point of desolation when God's people broke faith with him. This is how it's talked about in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, particularly Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant with my people, not like the one that you broke, even though I brought you out of out of Egypt and even though I was your husband. I'm making a new covenant with you, and I'll write my law on your hearts. So when you think about your friendships, when you think about entrusting yourselves to someone new, I know for a fact, I've talked to a lot of people, and because of betrayals and breaking of trust, people will not entrust themselves to new people they meet, or especially to the same person. And then maybe you look back and you say, oh, how great a friend that was or she was or he was. And then you compare this new beginning of a new relationship that the Lord may be involved in and that the Lord may use to help you endure. And because they're not that, something in the past that was so great and grand, you won't give that new relationship the time of day. So, brothers and sisters, move on from the past, as hard as that may be, and open up your life to someone and make friends. The last way I think we can look to Jesus when it comes to how we can make friends and how we can exhort our friends to endure in the Lord is that it's not about your life or your story. It's about the kingdom of God. This last one is partly a preview for the final message that we'll give, Lord willing, uh, next week. But it stands alone here as well. To sum it all up, your friendships, insofar as they are God-honoring, ought not to be ultimately about you and your friends. They ought to be about the glory of God and his kingdom. Be like Jesus and bring many sons to glory. And it may sound odd for me to say that. Look at Hebrews 2, 5 through 12. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned 
with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The reason I read that is to try to heighten the fact that this is the ministry of Jesus to bring many sons to glory. This is a ministry given to him. Is this just for Jesus, though? Is this something only Jesus does? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's not about Paul's life or about relationships ultimately helping him. His whole disposition towards everyone was to present them mature in Christ. You might say to me, well, that's that's Paul, right? He's the apostle. He has a special ministry from God. Well, turn to James chapter five then. James chapter 5, verse 19. This is how James ends his letter. My brothers, I'm sorry, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone, you should just insert your name right there. If someone, anyone, you or me, brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is for you and me. Be like Jesus and bring many sons to glory. Your interactions with your friends is about this. Or should be. So hopefully, as I've tried to explain how you can exhort your friends, hopefully you felt that this, regardless of what your situation is or how old you are, young you are, married, unmarried, whatever, there's someone in your life you can do this with. Eternity depends on it, and we're commanded to do it for our sakes as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to ask questions of your word, and to let the word answer those questions. I pray that we have seen the glory of biblical friendship this morning. And maybe, perhaps, a young person, an old person, an in-between person would see what you're calling us to in our friendships. I pray that you would change our minds, make us less self-serving, make us about your kingdom. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.